Hello. This is the first episode of the Working Hours podcast, and this is the second intro for it. I'm recording this intro as we're ramping up for another more intensive week of the coronavirus. There will be some discussion around this in later episodes. I'm hoping to interview people as this is still going on, um, just to see how it's affecting them and their work or their work search, anything to do with that kind of thing. This episode, however, was recorded back in November 2019 when everyone in Leeds also seemed to have a pretty horrible virus. Fortunately, myself and my first guest, Eleanor Snare, were not stricken with this at the time, that particular illness. Um, but enough from me for now. I want to try to keep these intros short, so without further ado, here's the first interview for the Working Hours podcast. It's inside, yeah. it's in the other room. Yeah. What time is it? 10? 10 o'clock. What time do you need to move to get buses and stuff? I don't need... Um, my, oh, you're not going now? They changed it because all the kids are rehearsing for Nativity. Oh. So <laughs> last week and this week I don't um, need to go in, but when I'd gone in like the week before, I had to take them out of the Nativity rehearsal and you just don't realise how insane <laughs> it was. Like Every one of them was holding this slip of paper with their line on. <laughs> And when they get up, it's like, oh, you know, Jane, get up. And she's like, Mary and Joseph went to the inn. There was no room at the inn. <laughs> and they're all, like, petrified and really excited. So, yeah, we don't have to go in because there's so much nativity stuff going on at the moment. So it's quite sweet, really. Yeah. Well, it uh, adds a bit of a colour to the dark, dark winter <laughs> I've been really enjoying it because I haven't been working... Like last year I was working and I, I, you know, you're getting up in the dark, you come mm. home in the dark, you don't really see much of the daylight, mm. um, and it's just a slog. Um, but actually not working through winter has been quite pleasant. When you have the... Just get up when you want, if it's quite nice, like mm. today, you just go for a wander outside, it's a nice crisp winter air, you dress for it appropriately, you when don't you... have to run around. Yeah, when you have the time in the day... But I guess that's it, is because, you know, the morning and then the evening are encroaching. Really, our our day, our shift of working should change. Like, I, I had a really good um, uh, speaker come to one of the events that me and my sister run, called Samantha Toon, and, and she kind of specialises in mindfulness and research and lots of different things. She does it on a corporate level. And one of the things she talked about was in winter how we don't change our working pattern. We mm. still work eight hours a day. But she was really, she said, really, it's like, if you worked five, you'd probably actually be a lot healthier, happier, because you'd be spending more time resting mm. and doing the things that your body needs mm. during winter. And I'd never really thought of that before, but um, it's definitely something that I want to look at for next year, is change, you know, change the pattern so that in summer, maybe you're, you're able to work a bit longer. It would seem sensible since plants and animals, everything change, else is doing and it. And they adapt. But, you know, yeah. super innovative, flexible capitalism <laughs> can't change. And, and like, when I was in Oz, it would just blow my mind that you'd have, like, boiling hot place, and you've got all these pasty white folk dressing mm. up in suits and getting on buses, getting in cars, doing nine to five. It's like, anywhere else where it's warm, they don't do this. They're more mm. sensible, they adapt to the, 
environment. Yeah, it's bizarre. it's kind of like in Singapore, I guess, as well, when I was there. It's so humid, mm. but they've obviously got huge financial centres, and everyone's still wearing suits and stuff. Like, that, you're, you're applying a kind of, I guess, a, in this instance, like a paradigm of what to wear to work and what's appropriate in a completely inappropriate situation. I think it's like sweaty suits. It's quite an interesting thing, because mm. it's a weird clothing because it doesn't seem like a lot of clothing you look at clothing we're talking complete nonsense <laughs> uh, you look at clothing there but you can see a sort of gradation like a mm. an evolution of them and the suit kind of just appears from nowhere mm. uh, you know. well there's a lot of like from a a fashion perspective in history with the suit the suit's got a lot of kind of elements of it which I guess were quite innovative of the time. So things like buttons, <laughs> you don't really think about how radical they were or zips. But before that, it's like everyone was just tying shit, shit together with rope. Yeah. And things like tailoring or just the fact that you can cut it bespoke was really quite, um, I suppose, quite exciting. I'd be interested to know where the kind of suit, the, the like two-piece suit as we know it and, and for a work capacity kind of properly emerged. Because I imagine it was earlier than we think yeah it's had a very good run it's been over a hundred years for sure sure definitely but yeah that kind of um i find the suits quite an interesting the subtlety in suiting is really you know a really interesting fashion the subtlety of suiting i remember seeing michael kane talking about he was on a program about savile row which actually are really interesting because they became a cooperative type thing. Mm-hmm. So years ago, like, um, I think it was in the 60s or 70s, a whole generation of men essentially rejected Savile Row because it was too reminiscent of their fathers and they were kind of rebelling. So during, I think, in the 70s maybe, I think it was, Savile Row essentially all the tailors got together and said, instead of being these independents, we're going to come together and be like the Savile Row brand mm-hmm. to protect ourselves and essentially like revamp what we're doing. So then you had people making suits for like the Rolling Stones and then you've got like Oswald Boateng going, like, who I think is amazing, like the first black Savile Row tailor. But they essentially joined together in their powers to market themselves as Savile Row. We can, you know, we can go from classic to like new wave, da 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 um, but Michael Caine in the show was saying that the thing about a good suit is no one would be able, no one can look at your suit and tell you why it's good. They'll just remember mm-hmm. that you are wearing a really good suit. Yeah. And like I always really liked that um, kind of the subtlety in a, you think a suit's just a suit, but actually there's so many small variations of what it, it can look like. We are going yeah, off on like, a tangent, but I'm... Power suits in the 80s. Yeah, but, mm. you know, it's... It's, it's work-related. interesting. Yeah, power <laughs> suits are, a front, like, a really interesting example of, particularly in work, and, like, how we... If you see someone in a pinstripe suit, anyone can wear a pinstripe suit, but you immediately think, oh, well, he clearly works... He, for a start... Yeah, it's a more serious person who clearly works in finance. Mm. It's like... No, he just, I don't know, he's going to court. Or, or he's a very good con man who's yeah. just going to take all your money, which is the same as working in finance. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> okay, so, uh, we just started recording in the middle of this. I'm not very good at the hosting thing. Yet. Okay. I just kind of ramble on talking <laughs> nonsense. Um, Sound like a great podcast host, then, <laughs> That's what they all do. Yeah, they talk far too much. <laughs> Yeah, right? Shut up. I know it's your show, but I didn't come to listen to you. Um, So uh, let's start with, well, let's start with the silly question. What did you want to be when you grew up? 
What did I want to be when I grew up? Um, the thing that I wanted to be most when I grew up, and I still want to be, is an astronaut. Nice. And because... It's n- space. It's space. Because <laughs> what I actually want to do is see the Earth from space. Mm. Um, I think there's something really... You know, every account of every astronaut I've ever read has been... It is life-changing. Mm. I remember someone said it's almost like you see God mm. because you suddenly your perspective, it kind of just radically changes you. So I've always wanted to be an astronaut, and I'm kind of hoping that somehow I will be able to still go into space. Maybe. So yeah, I wanted to be an astronaut. Um, I didn't really... When I was very young, I didn't really kind of think... You know, some kids have, like, I want to be a dentist, or, I mean, boring kids. No, that <laughs> dentists are really important. You know, I want to be a writer, I want to be this. I didn't really have that kind of urge. I was just very much focused on, like, just enjoying myself. Yeah. Like, well, as an adult. Um, and then I think as I kind of got older slightly, I realised that I really I really wanted to be a teacher. Um, but I was um, discouraged from doing that. Discouraged? Um, I remember I said to my dad, I really want to be a teacher. And he said those who can do and those who can't teach which I think is probably one of the biggest lies that anyone kind of believes but lots of people have said things like that and my dad had said it in a very kind of flippant you know just silly humor mm. dad dad joke way yeah um I think probably not realizing the impact it had mm. um on me like it would any child who went to a parent and said you know I, I kind of think this is what I really want to do mm. Um, so I kind of not avoided it but just didn't really engage with it even though from that point on all through my teenage years um, and onwards I did a lot of teaching stuff so like volunteering um, private tutoring when I was at university did work experience at schools lots of different things like that I never really kind of went down the path of traditional teaching like PGCE and things like that so I really wanted to be a teacher and then um, I kind of, as I got, you know, went through college and everything, I just, it's funny looking back, I realised that I just didn't really know. Um, and a lot of what I did, I just want, did whatever I wanted to do next. So I did an art foundation because I liked it, went to art college because I liked it, went to do an MA because I thought it'd be good. And it was only when I kind of finally left education that I got, you know, a, a proper job in inverted <laughs> commas. As in a job in an you know in a, an office nine to five, um, that my my life kind of took a slightly different turn, but I was never really like that um, driven by the concept of a job. Mm-hmm. It was more about what do I like doing, mm-hmm. and what what could I how could I do that most of the time, and someone could give me some money mm-hmm. rather than a job. Yeah, which is the hard bit. Yeah, that's kind of finding that out, and um, it is a. I think I've done quite a few different things, which I imagine we'll talk about in a minute, um, and they've all kind of coalesced into me understanding a bit more of what I like to do. But even now, I still struggle to sort of say a job title. I think our obsession with job titles is actually quite. Um, it's like a red herring, because job titles basically can be really meaningless they can be really useful if the job is well established and clearly kind of delineated 
in, say, a particular industry. Mm-hmm. But for a huge number of people, particularly in creative fields, job titles just aren't really... They're, they're too inflexible for the, the skills that are required or the things that you end up doing yeah. under that job title. Or they get too long. Yeah. <laughs> or they get too ridiculous. I, I do this, 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 this. Yeah, it was like, they called it, um, what was it, was it called, like, the slash generation mm-hmm. of, like, I'm a DJ slash illustrator slash model slash da-da-da-da, which is essentially just a list of skills but rather than a job title. Or you're an odd job. Man. Yeah, which no one, no one would say that now. But when I think about it, I'm kind of like, I kind of am that. I'm a, I'm a digital bobber jobber. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but you think no one, you know, you wouldn't say that now, or you know that whole thing of what do you do, or you know this and that, mm. that kind of Del Boy type lifestyle. Yeah. But actually, a lot of people do. Even I've been thinking now, like I was just selling loads of selling some stuff on eBay recently. Mm. Is that like a job? No, is it an income stream? Yes. So yeah. it's like, but am I going to put that on my well, CV? Well, I just did a bit of retailing. And... Just do a bit of visual merchandising. <laughs> but, but people, you know, and then there's people like kids say who maybe start up on Depop and they actually sell quite a lot and it becomes, but that becomes, a, you know, a viable business or viable income stream. But they are doing things like visual merchandising and social media content generation and SEO. They're doing all that. But if you said, I sell on Depop, no one is going to say oh, yeah, you've learned all these skills. Mm. Whereas actually it's about, that's why I think the job title is kind of a bit, it has a use, well, but it's not the, the be-all and end-all. Yeah, and it's how you can sell it, because, you know, it's the whole transferable skills thing, transferable skills, transferable mm. skills, you know, what you can use here, what can you use elsewhere, and not so much the qualifications, but the experience that you've mm. had, and how that can be turned into something else. But that's a very, I mean, you know... So, I think that's a very neoliberal thing that's really embedded yes. in it. It's that whole sort of you are your own brand, live brand, mm. and you can you know you can then turn your hand to all these different things because you're being that brand. Yeah, and that's kind of like there are benefits to that. I think one of the greatest um, kind of greatest and saddest achievements in a way of things of you know neoliberal capitalism is that it does have so many benefits that it's difficult to push against it. Um, because a lot of people do want to do lots of different things and they don't want to be in a cradle-to-grave job. Um, and so they have this opportunity in our current economic climate to do that. However, there is then a kind of lots of things fall short. I had a conversation with my students the other day about being self-employed and one of them was like oh I really want to do it because you know I don't want to work for anyone else and I want to be my own boss and I said you know well there's no sick pay there's no HR there's no holiday pay there is no maternity leave there's no paternity leave like there's no you have to be every single member of that company sales accounts and he was like and you're not just working for yourself you're working for everybody else I'm working I'm like they sometimes talk about in the business and on the business Mm -hmm. And, like, you're working in the business doing the do for clients and then you also have to work on the business, the business development, the sales pitches, all of that stuff, within, you know, a 40-hour week, which is why every self-employed person I've ever met has always ended up working more hours than they do when they work 9 to 5 because you're having to work lots of different jobs. In some way, that's great. I mean, and I think there's negative aspects to that in terms of things like security and... You know, I've, when I was off sick, um, I've been off sick, unfortunately, quite a bit this year, 
not sure why, but um, I don't get paid. Mm. And if I've got a job that I've booked in, that income's suddenly like gone. So it's about, you know, learning the financial skills to deal with that. I think one of the interesting things is being self-employed or like that idea of transferable skills. It does offer so many opportunities, but only if you learn how to do that. So it's almost like you have to learn the skill of identifying how to transfer a skill. Yeah. Because that's really hard. Like you, a lot of people have been trained in a very like, you know, fit tab A into slot B, A, B or whatever, right? So when you go, well, you've got tab A, what slot do you want to put it in? Everyone's like, I don't fucking know. So it's almost like you have to learn how to see the opportunities and learn how to transfer things, which is much more about critical thinking and strategy and stuff like that, which doesn't get taught. So it's kind of like one of the myths, I think maybe, of kind of a neoliberal capitalist approach to work is that look at all these opportunities it's like yeah but you haven't taught I don't know how to approach them because mm-hmm. I've never been taught mm-hmm. because if I was taught to think strategically and critically and all that stuff I probably wouldn't want to take part in your bloody economic system so it's kind of like a bit of a vicious cycle I think well I think there's lots of weird things with it so you you get so if we take like a sort of white glam man 1980s yeah like now a contractor, like self-employed, mm. and within that, there's this idea of, uh, that very idea of working for yourself and having mm. the freedom and choosing your own hours and having this much more control over things. But like you said, that's not necessarily the reality. But within that as well, that idea of you just open a business and you're free and therefore you can do what you want. It's like, well, that's ignoring the reality of actually running a business, mm. you know? Like, you need someone there who's doing the bureaucracy, all businesses are bureaucracies, mm. that paperwork needs to be done. Accounts need to be filed and published and, you know, and uh, taxes need to be done. Uh, paperwork needs to be filed. Mm. You don't just start a business and become a billionaire and stride around mm. the earth making decorative statements, you know, you've got mm. to do the actual nitty-gritty. And that's missed a lot. And I think that's a major, major problem for things like trades and small businesses, Mm. like self-employed people, unless they've got an experience within a larger organisation or within an established company, you're not necessarily going to have those skills. Mm. And even if you're reading them out of the book, you don't know sort of the pitfalls or the ways to improve things. Mm. It's like having having business literacy, essentially, like financial literacy and things like that. And a huge number of people don't have those skills and we don't really teach those skills in the schools for example like financial literacy is not something that is necessarily taught very much in a lot of schools um but financial literacy is crucial when you work for yourself you you know I was not very good at maths at school I didn't really engage with it I found it very very difficult and it was only when I actually ran started my own business that I felt any affinity with okay I can look at these numbers because suddenly it was like applied and also suddenly it was like these numbers matter Mm -hmm. you know these numbers are gonna make or break whether I can pay my rent or da 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 so yeah a lot of people having that those literacies um in those areas is really important to feeling capable of running a business and not getting stung Mm -hmm. I wonder if part of it is comes from previously when we didn't have as much as a government, 
didn't have as many rules and regulations about business setting up a business or running a business people could just essentially set up a business so I say set up a business in inverted commas Mm -hmm. you could make money you could bring money in and you could pay money out Mm -hmm. and I wonder if it was we're just still hanging on to that idea even though the our world and our bureaucratic our bureaucratic systems have changed significantly but then but then saying that there's a lot of people working under like you know let's say not illegally but let's say sort of side (laughs) of the side of the law and there's you know do do you declare if you're fully employed like on a you know say a full-time job and you do a bit of freelancing on the side but you only make a couple of hundred or a couple of grand a year do you declare it Mm. i don't know do you for the time and the paperwork and everything well i mean the thing is should you declare it i mean yes legally However, yeah, time, paperwork, all that stuff, the fact that you're going to get taxed on it above your tax threshold because of the way that you're, it all adds up. Like, people don't. And I think that's the systems we have. You know, if we want to have, like, say, an entrepreneurial society or an ultra entrepreneurial culture, we do need to make the running of businesses easier. But that does not mean free market capitalism but that means other things I don't think they do want an entrepreneurial culture I don't think they do want you know like you want cheap labour and the people who are at the top aren't interested in having competition you know it's not like they want new companies coming through to threaten their profits they want new monopolies to start I would say but not necessarily new people coming through I think I would disagree only because if I have a business, established business of 20 years and some new kid comes up with a great idea, it's a lot easier to buy that idea. Mm. Whereas if we don't have a culture in which we encourage people to set up, you know, be entrepreneurial, we're not going to have those people coming out and saying, oh, my idea can do something. They're not going to put a business case together. It's just going to be a kid creating something in his bedroom or whatever. Mm. So I think it's about generation of ideas and kind of harvesting them a bit. Um, but it's there are a lot of challenges I sometimes feel quite torn in that you know in my heart and how I try and live my life is generally um, not trying to not be in the throes of capitalism all the time Mm. and yet I'm a self-employed person who essentially is entrepreneurial I make you know I I charge out at a high rate like an hourly rate um I make a good profit, and when I, when I do work, um, there are things I want to do with that profit differently, but it's, it's challenging for me because, like, I'm benefit, benefiting quite s- significantly from a, a method of working or a, a, a generation of, of a type of economy, while at the same time really vividly seeing all of the problems with it, particularly when I'm teaching students and their expectations of themselves and their expectations of work um it's just kind of a bit of a there's a tension there which i think is great it's really helpful in a way it helps me think about it and make better choices mm-hmm. but it's also kind of sometimes a bit um difficult in discussions because i'm always flip-flopping <laughs> well yeah it's like the whole sort of schizophrenic thing of you know, be, be nice and social to everyone, but also crush all the competition. Yeah, which I never... And I think that's... You, you get a bit indoctrinated in that. But ultimately, you know, there's 7 billion people on the planet. There's enough space and food and water and money for everyone. 
and like a big part I think a big part from I mean, we're kind of like jumping all over the place because I haven't really said what I do but a big part of what I do and how I'm trying to think about what I do is if I continue to believe in the mythology of capitalism of competition then in my business as in well they're my competition for like this client right if I continue to believe in that then that is essentially agreeing with this myth of capitalism that there isn't enough but I don't believe that it's this idea of scarcity the world is not scarce in the same way that people's time their money their business is not scarce so someone can work with me or someone else and it would be equally as good it would be equally as okay because there is enough for everyone but it's really hard to kind of run a business with that kind of I don't want I think anti-capitalist is probably too strong and I think people would look at me and be like you're not an anti-capitalist but um run a business in my with without trying to adhere without getting sucked in mm. to that mythology and those ways of working because they're just bullshit mm. but it's really hard to like do, to use the use the good bits of like capitalist economy mm. economic structures use the good bits or the what the bits that work effectively and discard the bad bits it's really difficult to like try and negotiate that but i think it's better to try yeah. Than yeah. to just be like, fuck it, I'm going to be a massive capitalist because I just can't be asked. I haven't got, I, haven't, it, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. Well, part, part of it's to do with Cossack. Right, well, I'll come back to sort of, let, let's do, let's cover what you're actually doing then first. Yeah, should we do the question? Yeah. <laughs> and then I want to kind of go back to what you were saying. So, uh, if you can also talk a bit about, um, so within your work, what do you think are the kind of destructive things that your job is doing that you can't alleviate but would like to be able to alleviate? Because I would imagine with yours, I mean, most of it's probably just going to be travel and because you're not going to be, it's not like you're going and uprooting villages and displacing people and poisoning no. water or anything. I try not to do that. <laughs> um, okay, so... I do a variety of different things and all of them are focused on helping people I helping people understand what they really care about in life and living and working according to those values really simply so is it mentoring work coaching yes yeah, so it's a huge range of stuff so I teach so I'm a tutor um, and a big part of what I do although I teach um, so I teach fashion branding and communication um and fashion marketing although I teach under that umbrella a lot of what I'm doing is around individual projects and what do you really care about and how can you focus on that and a lot of what I end up doing and have always ended up doing in my university tutoring is around pastoral kind of kind of pastoral adjacent care so as we talk about their project it's about understanding what do you really want to do mm -hmm. with your life and what are you trying to achieve to help them feel basically that it's okay to do that um i do sort of coaching and mentoring so um i work with people one-on-one -on -one. often people who are creative who perhaps struggle to really try and get the get the results they want and when I say results I don't mean financial it might be like I worked with someone recently who was doing a kickstarter for her project and a big thing for her was 
getting people to support it not just because they were her friends but because they genuinely cared about the project because that mm-hmm. was about what she really valued mm-hmm. um so work with people like that or are other artists people who want to start businesses or people who run businesses and need help essentially coming back to why they did it in the first place mm-hmm. um and when i work with larger businesses you know like limited companies it's around values-based branding so often people will have like a great logo and a nice website mm-hmm. and they won't know what the fuck they stand for mm-hmm. so it's about helping them come back to those values and feel again more connected and confident in what do i actually care about and how am i going to get there mm-hmm. because the majority of businesses and people that i work with money is not the driver mm-hmm. something else is the driver but they don't necessarily know how to articulate it or mm-hmm. kind of I guess once they do articulate it, they don't know how to, you know, how do you run a business that's focused on excitement? Mm. How do you run a business that's focused on like gentleness? So it's working with them to work that out. And then um, I do occasional workshops. So I did a workshop recently for the University of Leeds around embracing change and trying to understand the kind of emotional repercussions of change. Um, And I talk a lot about emotion, mental health, um, I'm a non-violent communication practitioner, mm-hmm. so I talk a bit about that. So a lot of what I do is kind of with businesses or in a work capacity, but it's often focused on the things that people don't want to talk about at work mm-hmm. because they think they open the office door and they forget about all of the stuff and they don't. So it's talking about emotion, values, f- you know, feelings, and kind of interpersonal relationships is a big thing. How do we talk to each other? So kind of a few different things. And I occasionally sell stuff on eBay. <laughs> um, and I also... Not got an Etsy account yet, though. No, I did, but I did. <laughs> and then um, me and my sister have... This year we've run um, monthly events for creative people, which are kind of a mix of personal and professional development and networking. So we had one on mindfulness. We had one on... Um, getting organized so how do I sort out all the different projects that I'm doing and actually trying to structure them um and again that's about connecting people to what they really care about especially for creative people so many creative people reject the idea that they're allowed to be creative Mm -hmm. like subconsciously um so it's about helping them return to that so this is why I think you know when I'm explaining it one of the challenges I have there isn't a job title for this there is just the things that I do that come under this heading of helping people know, I guess, who they are and what they care about and helping them mm. deliver on that in their life and, mm. like, not ignore it. I wish there was a job title. It would be helpful. I might make one up. So, yeah, yeah that's I, what... I, I mean, consultants generally... It's consultant, and it's kind of like, is it... I don't know, is it a lot... One of the things I think is quite interesting having this discussion now is... Um, I'm just about to embark on a big year-long coaching program for myself, Mm -hmm. partly because I'm finding that I really want to do something more expansive and wide-reaching with this work, but I don't know how to because I'm kind of coming up to a block about how to communicate it, about how to get the message out there. Things like running a business, I'm going to need some support and help, like who do I need to work with? So it's quite interesting having this conversation now and I guess articulating a bit of that um experience and i guess sharing with people that it's not as easy as like you know when i started my freelance business i was a copywriter because mm. that's what i, I did at my, when i worked in marketing agencies i was a copywriter and that was it 
You know, it's just simple. Everyone gets it. Apart from one guy, once I said I'm a copywriter, and he said, oh, so patents and stuff. And I was like, like, he thought I was a, did, anyway. I was like, okay, yeah, I work in the patents office. I'm like Einstein. <laughs> but um, everyone kind of vaguely gets that, or at least part of the name. Whereas when you go, so what do you do now? I'm like, well, you know all those things that you really care about in your life that you don't want to tell anyone, but you wish were part of your life every day? I help you do that. You know, that's quite, I don't know what that is, but that's, you know. Anyway, so it's an interesting discussion to have now. Mm. So that's kind of what I do. So how long, how long have you been doing this, would you say, as... as because I would imagine there's some evolution to it where you're picking up sort of piecemeal work before you kind of formulate yeah. into it. Right, this is this is my raison d'etre. Mm. Um, so how how long would you say you've been doing this as is? Like, or how long would you say you could call yourself? You would see yourself as being professional in this field. I've been self-employed in March. March twenty twenty will be five years. In terms of this work that I'm doing now. I think it's probably in the last year that I've really felt this is the direction. And previously to that, in all of my jobs, um, in all of my, like my full-time jobs, mm. in all of my self-employment work, there has been some element <coughs> of it. <coughs> you okay? Um, there has been some element of that. So I started kind of guest lecturing, for example, when I was still working full-time. Mm. Um, I started doing things like mentoring or just some sort of like supporting people. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess when I was um, when I was eighteen at university, I started doing private tutoring and working with kids. But a lot of sometimes what I was doing was things like supporting them through the eleven plus or mm-hmm. through A levels and just trying to help them feel confident. Mm-hmm. So it's always been something that I've just done. But it's only in the last year that I would say. I've gone, oh, yeah, this is... A th- it's like I've always done it, but I just decided to tell people about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm kind of a beginner. So it's kind of like you... Would it be fair to say that you kind of started taking your own advice? Because, you know, you're telling people to sort of self-actualise, be themselves and mm. work at what they want to do. And then if you've only just kind of sort of solidified that in the last year, then to me it sounds a little bit like you were kind of on your own evolution to that point? Yeah. That not right? No. <laughs> in some ways, yeah. I think we're all on that. Like, so everyone in their life's journey is on a process of, of that, if you want to call it self actualization or like realising um, what they really care about. Everyone does it. But some people do it on their deathbed. Mm-hmm. Some people do it when they're 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think for me, there was a lot of processes that I had to go through before I got to that point, because it's really hard to be comfortable with what you really care about and want to do in the world. If, for example, you have low self-esteem or you are like a survivor of trauma, because there's so many holes that you feel like, well, I can't, like we were talking about before about operating from this place of like feeling scarcity or feeling like the, you know, in the kind of hippie community, it's like abundance, Mm. but actually it is abundance. Mm. It's feeling like you are coming from a place of just complete wholeness. I wasn't there. I had a lot of like emotional difficulties, a lot of like trauma recovery to do. And I wouldn't have been able to get 
to this point without that. So it's not necessarily that I think I took my own advice professionally. It's that when I had done all the steps to help myself personally, emotionally, and kind of in my like heart and my soul, it was like, oh shit, this is the thing I've been doing all along. Mm-hmm. I've been helping others. There was a big shift actually. Like it's quite an emotional topic for me because it is something I care about so much. Mm-hmm. But there was a shift when what when people said they really liked what I did or they said, oh, you really helped me, I would like burst into tears. So if a student emailed me when they were leaving and be like, oh, you know, I really appreciate your help and you really, you know, made a difference, I would just like cry. <laughs> and there was a point where I stopped crying and it was because I recognised that I was allowed to like get that feedback and I was allowed to kind of be loved and cared for and for what, that what I did was meaningful. Mm. That was the point when I went, oh, okay, now I can talk about this. Now I can do this openly. Now I can come from this good place rather than coming from a place of just feeling like I wasn't allowed. Like, you know, if you're really fucked up, which is what I thought I was, why are you allowed to talk to anyone about, like, feeling great about yourself? Because everyone is. Yeah. (laughs) But that's really hard to know when you're, like, in the pit. Yeah. So in terms of, yeah, I think I did take some of my own advice, but probably not in the same way I think that I I kind it was more like it had just been for all of the people I work with actually and this is I guess the same for me it's always been there mm. just everything else gets in the fucking way mm. so I had to kind of get like work on all that stuff first and a lot of the people I do work with have done that bit so they've done they've been to therapy they've done some healing they've done some kind of trauma work or they they've dealt with their mental health challenges they kind of know that they can take care of themselves personally mm-hmm. and then they go oh well this why is my work not why haven't I done that with my work and that's where i kind of start working with them mm-hmm. does that answer the question no it does yeah, yeah. um so i i do want to go back to this point so like in terms of detrimental impact like I don't it's not like I'm just trying to concentrate on the negative because yeah. like just from your own description there there's a straightforward positive impact of like you know you're positively impacting people's lives yes which is going to give an overall positive um an amount of like like me in, yeah my, my index is so, going yeah up. yeah so on the destructive side yeah of just we live in the world the world as it is now in a first world country, basically the second, well, every time we breathe, we're destroying rainforests <laughs> and like just by being alive. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, what, what are the kind of downsides and is there any ability for you to negate that? Because you already know that you're, you're adding a, a sort of net positive gain. You would say, because yes. those people are going to go on and they're going to add positive gain. Um, there's going to be embedded negativity in it, but would you say that there is anything that you could do that you need to change, or is it just from a like material sustainability perspective? Let's say first of all, um, I don't drive, so I in terms of like stuff like transport, get the bus, which is always like there's this weird thing I think sometimes with the world, a lot of business and work things are not built around. Sus- environmental sustainability they're built around like speed and pace so when, when people are like can you come and do a workshop and I'm like yeah is there a bus stop nearby it kind of has this weird um 
slightly unprofessional quality mm-hmm. but when I explain you know this these are my choices that I'm making so I do things like that I think probably a big material thing that I do is a lot of the stuff I do people think through issues and feelings more effectively when they do it on paper mm-hmm. and so I go through a lot of paper mm-hmm. and I do personally as well because I'm a big writer and journaler that is something that I feel is quite I'm aware of it mm-hmm. but I also know it it isn't as effective if you do it digitally. I don't know what the kind of solution there is apart from continuing to recycle and buying recycled paper and just... Well, I don't know that there's an overall, like, you know, paperless stuff. I mean, you're using your rare earths and your cobalt and, you know, all Mm -hmm. of the millions of deaths that are attached to those for for using electronic and computer software. That's true. Is that better than you know and running it off electricity so you've got to burn fossil fuel mm. to it so you, you're literally contributing carbon to the atmosphere as you're doing whatever creative creative thing mm. or work thing that you're doing on an electronic device when I mean, you've got a piece of paper you're writing both sides of it with a pen it's like, yeah. is it really more damaging and people you? keep it i think there's a longevity to writing on paper and it has it has a such a str- like you know, it's a, it's a strong bond. It's, a, it's a, huge and I would bond. say it's still an immensely powerful technology. And I would say it's probably a more like for me personally, I think it's a more powerful technology than than the internet and everything else. Yeah. it's reliable. It's always there. You don't yeah. have to wait for it to load. Yeah. As long as you don't lose it, it's more effective. And it's more effective to achieve the things that my I want to achieve with the people I work with, mm. and they want to achieve. So that's the thing. Something that I have recognised that I do, but I probably would never have like couched it in the language of of like detrimental effect, is I, you know, if someone comes approaches me to work with me, I normally go on a kind of intuitive level of like, do I want to work with them or not? And there have been people that I've turned down, and I recognise now that partly the reason I turned them down is because of some sort of I feel there's some sort of detrimental thing going on, so. That doesn't have to be like, oh, they make, I don't know, guns. Yeah. I don't want to work with them. It's not as simple as that. And like I've worked for, you know, when I was working full time, I was working for like, you know, massive financial companies, some of whom were directly responsible for the 2008, you know, banking crisis. I was working with gambling firms. We even had some like not, you know, I don't think pornography is bad. I think there's some fucking bad pornography, though. We're working with people like that. We're working with pet food companies. You know, like, there are worse. Yeah. That I'm, you know, I'm working with artists who... Like, but, so, for example, someone came to me and said, oh, can we work together? This was a few years ago now. And I said, you know, what's your goal? What do you want to achieve in a year? And they said, I want to make a million pounds. And I went... I don't want to work with you. Mm. And at the time, it was just like, this is a bad feeling. But I think what I recognise now is... I but feel... you also can't deliver that either. It's like, you're not going to be... Okay, here's my 12-point step so yeah. you get a million pounds within a year. Yeah. And also, like, it's just... All the big research groups, like um, Mintel and McKinsey, everyone has been talking about for years, and Harvard Business Review for years has been the importance of values and the importance of a meaningful reason for, to have a business. And that's why people buy things. or but, So people buy because of necessity, but when it's like over the kind of the necessity level, the choice is around, do I care about this and do I feel affinity with it? If... This guy was making products for kids. 
like saying, oh, well, what's your goal? Oh, well, I want to make a million pounds. No fucking parents aren't going to want to like, isn't going to want to contribute to that. Yeah. Whereas if you said, I want to bring joy into the hearts of millions of children, everyone wants to contribute to that. No one wants to not contribute to that. So it's like, I you think... You would have been better off saying, I want to make a million children happy. Yeah. <laughs> and I would have been like, that's really nice. Okay, I don't think you're going to achieve that in a year. That's a big goal. However, I think you could definitely achieve that in a certain amount of time. But I think it's like, I've got some, because part of what I do is like being in tune with my own values and what I want the world to be like, I think I've got some sort of intuitive process where I go, you are not working in the way that I think the world should be. And I want the world to be more sustainable and more to not have detrimental effects. So there's some choices I'm making, perhaps unknowingly where I'm going, I don't, this isn't right for me um so I tend not to work I wouldn't ever say to a bit like I wouldn't ever say I don't work with businesses who do xyz because you're for me that's cutting myself off from actually possibly improving a business Mm -hmm. um and also you don't know that well like you say improving the business but you you don't know necessarily that you do dislike the thing like you find out more about it it might be more nuanced than you might initially assume yeah, I can't tell until yeah. I've met them and I've read about them and I've like had some sort of Actual interaction with them. them. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I tend to, to end up working with people who are kind of on the same wavelength, uh, which I think a lot of um, like um, individuals do running businesses like this is, is you just, those people are drawn to you and you are drawn to them. So I think that's part of it. In terms of what are the detrimental effects, I have some issues around teaching fashion and fashion marketing because fashion is the second biggest you know it's the second biggest polluter in the world as an industry only behind oil it's incredibly wasteful um it's just ultimately very depressing and the idea of like it being sustainable there being a movement towards sustainable purchasing is essentially a fallacy people are doing it but not not to any extent that we think they are. As long as you've got advertising, you're just not going to get rid of consumerism. Right? It's a straightforward, non-stop, propaganda barrage of like consume, consume, consume. So that's a big thing is the fact like, you know, I've kind of, one of those things that I do understand marketing. I get it. Like I get what to do. Because I think the best marketing comes from empathy and comes from like understanding the person you're talking to and facilitating whatever it is that they want to achieve in their life or providing them with something that says that they achieve the thing. Rapport building is the thing. Yeah. yeah. So I get it. So it's just unfortunate that I'm kind of good at something or I understand something which I also recognise to be hugely problematic. Mm. Um, so in the work that I do with students, often what I'm doing or, or really getting them to think about is the kind of ethical and moral quandaries that come up with some of the work that they may be required to do mm-hmm. and how they can negotiate and navigate that. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean telling them all they shouldn't work for fashion brands. Mm-hmm. It's getting them to think about, I guess, make some choices, be conscious of your choices. Um, and be be conscious that if you are asked to do something and it goes against, again, what you value and what you believe to be important in your life, mm-hmm. how are you going to negotiate that? How are you going to deal with that? Mm-hmm. But that is that can be difficult sometimes. Are you familiar with the Alan MacArthur Foundation? I know of it, but I don't know 
a huge amount of stuff about yeah, it. Circular economy mm-hmm. stuff. They should be, yeah, yeah. So I mean that that would be. I, I saw a tweet yesterday that was from them that was basically it was like three industries. One of them was aluminium. There were two others, and it was like if we just have made these three industries mm-hmm. a circular economy system, uh, it would wipe out as much carbon as is generated by all the traffic in the world. Mm-hmm. Which is just like, you it's know, there, there's so many straightforward, easy wins that are just like a tiny bit of legislation. Mm. And it wouldn't, it's like, but because we live in such a, an ideological society like, that pretends, you know, in the Gizek way of like, we're not ideological at all, beyond mm. ideology. I and mean, it's the most ideological. So much is just off the table. It's just, mm. you can't do it because communism, whatever, or it threatens somebody's profits. Mm. And it, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that we can't have a more mixed economy, that we can't live in a sensible way. Mm. I just find it very odd. Yeah, it's, I think it's, um, you, know, you know, general election coming up. Unless this, if this is released afterwards, we can do like, we can do some different cuts of us like cheering or crying, depending <laughs> on the result. Um, in terms of like governmental legislation, I'm always going to vote for. Um, policies which I believe are kind of for the good of the many not the few Mm. but one of the challenges I think is that most of us feel that it's hard to to, like to create that on an individual level Mm. and if you know or you reading about sustainability it gets to the point where you realize I think it was George Mumbia who said like don't take long-haul flights and become vegetarian everything else is basically just like who fucking cares Mm. until we legislate Mm -hmm. on big companies so one of the biggest things that I try to do in my work is I do genuinely believe, I really believe this, if we have more people listening to their internal values, mm-hmm. to what they really care about, they will be seeking less satisfaction externally mm-hmm. and they will be less inclined to play by these arbitrary rules and these ideologies which aren't fulfilling them. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what I'm trying to do is saying to people, don't think that you have to have this special fancy job. Don't think that you have to earn all this money. Mm. Don't think you have to buy a fucking Audi and da 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 da. Well, if you really care about adventure, that is something that is so crucial to who you are and your soul, just do that. Mm. Don't worry about anything else. So a big part of me is like, it feels really small, but like you said about that, having that positive, that kind of net positive ripple effect. If I can get one student to make a choice between, okay, I'm going to take a job actually that is more in alignment with who I am and less about ticking this fancy capitalist box, Mm -hmm. that's an achievement. That, to me, is working towards that kind of greater sustainable project. Mm -hmm. A a big part of... Well, not a big part, but, like, I did a a chunk of research around human sustainability and how we can develop that in university education. Mm -hmm. So there's the kind of... From the Brundtland report, there's economic, social, environmental, and then there's human. Mm -hmm. But people kind of don't talk about human a lot Mm -hmm. because it's about... They talk about human capital, which I feel a bit like, about. Or human resources. Human resources. But in terms of capital, it's about what do I know? What skills do I have? My level of education? What do I have internally? My resources, which can help me essentially go through life in a sustainable manner. Mm And one of the reasons that people don't often talk about human sustainability is because it's got like a really, really long, really long term um, like ROI. Yes. Because you educate a child at five, you're not going to see the results of that till 20 years later. So it's kind of on the same, 
it's got some of the similar problems in a way as environmental sustainability and that p- people can't conceive of the, the time frame in which we need to be operating. Mm-hmm. But for me, that's where I kind of, I feel like there's a real opportunity to create more sustainable societies by working in that area of sustainable development Mm -hmm. is how can we educate people and equip people so they have internal resources that help them develop and progress through life Mm -hmm. because the more internal resources you have and the more resilience power the feeling that you are okay Mm -hmm. the less you will be looking externally to be made okay which means less for me it means less consumerism less materialism less focus on like social approval mm. it's more about do you know what i'm all right mm. and not i'm all right conservatism with a small c isolationism it's i'm all right and therefore i have the opportunity to help others and to become part of this wider group mm-hmm. so there's kind of like a bit of a left field approach that i i like taking because it's also something I think every single person can do. Every single person. Some people can't be vegetarian because they've got anemia or whatever, right? But every single person can go, right, I'm going to equip myself and do the work that I need to do to feel okay with who I am. So I stop looking externally for these validations. That doesn't mean you don't buy clothes. It doesn't mean you don't buy nice face products or don't go on holiday. It means that you do so consciously... And that you do so not because you feel like you have to or not because you feel it's going to fill a gap in who you are. Mm. I'm one of those terrible lefty university teachers. Well, I was going to say, so how does that... <coughs> you know, it, it, it's good and it's all, you know, it's nice verbiage. And I agree largely, you know, I'm sort of sympathetic with all that. How, how at, at the more difficult end, you know, like how we like to label people these days as vulnerable or whatever. Yeah. Like, uh, does that apply for someone who's from a poor background equally as much? Because they're not necessarily going to have the resources to be like, right, I'm totally going to get my head together and now I'm going to do the thing that I want to do. Mm. I mean, they might not even be in an art field in the first mm. place because it's like. That's too mm. bougie for me. I need to go and smash bus stops or whatever. So I like, I sometimes think about this myself as well because, you know, the majority of people I've worked with tend to be middle class. <clears throat> a lot of my students, the fact that they're at university gives them a certain level of privilege. I predominantly um, work with white people, mm. white cis women. Just that is what happens. I think one of the challenges is that this is probably why for me I'm I do I want things to change on a systemic level as in governmental reform because it means that everyone is given something is given a kind of you know like for example there should be a social baseline social baseline if you've got a social baseline then everyone can start working on these things at the moment it's like stop if it, I think someone says you know when you when you're worrying about where your next meal is coming from, no one's kind of pondering the nature of existence. So at the moment, because there's not a social baseline, there's a huge number of people who aren't feeling capable of kind of looking within and going, what do I need to do? And how do, like, as I said, creating that, those resources for themselves or recognising they have those resources. 
Well, if you kind of get out of bed, you're not going to go and yeah. self-actualise it. Do I think that everyone has the capability to develop those resources? Yes. Mm-hmm. Do I think I can help everyone develop those resources by myself? No. I think there needs to be significant systemic like reform, mm-hmm. again, for that social baseline. But also then there's the opportunity of going and kind of, I suppose, having better access to people and processes which help develop those resources. So, for example, therapy on the NHS. Mm-hmm. Predominantly, the therapy that's provided on the NHS is cognitive behavioural therapy, mm-hmm. which is great. It's not talking therapy. It's not, not psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. Psychoanalysis, however, and talking therapy helps you get to like deep root problems, which you kind of have to deal with that shit mm-hmm. before you can change your behaviour. So there's a weird like issue there. So that's things like that. In terms of, I have a couple of people who I work with who often have um, kind of chronic pain sufferers or maybe they have particularly difficult mental health challenges. One of the things around that is helping them develop methods to do the thing they want to do mm-hmm. while also caring for themselves. Mm-hmm. So that again, that's I think part of it is just giving people time and not, I try not to get sucked into that myth of like, well, if you have this, you're basically, you can't do any of this stuff, mm-hmm. which I think we accidentally can end up doing. We can say, oh, well, if someone, if someone is poor or if someone is suffering with depression or if someone is doing that, suddenly they can't do any of that stuff. It's like, actually, they might be able to do some of those things in a very specific way that works for them that's actually going to be beneficial, but it takes time and like interaction to get to that point where they know what those are. And we're not like, I think that's the thing that's lacking is maybe that that individual, okay, how can I do this? Because otherwise people, you know, say you're having a really shitty time with anxiety and everyone's like, you need to do self-care. And it's like every moment that you spend with yourself is like a fucking hurricane. And it's really stressful. I'm not doing enough self-care. I'm not doing enough self-care. Yeah, I'm doing it wrong. And like everything I do, oh, I can't go to the shop to buy a bath bomb because I'm too freaky. That, you know, Lush is like this. I smell too much to go and smell good. Yeah, Lush is like this huge, like hypersensitive situation, right? And it's a very intense smell when you go It's like, I know people who can't go in. So, and then they go, well, well, that means that I can't do it. Therefore, I'm a failure. Mm. And we're not, for me, it's about providing a greater scope of, what you can do around that so actually is it self-care actually for that person is more about breathing techniques or it's more about being in nature or it's more about i don't know just sitting quietly or putting on a nice outfit which sounds so minor even saying to them it's okay to watch three hours of tv yeah (laughs) and it's kind of we do that online you know instagram has this great kind of fantastic like number of inspirational motivational quotes Mm. and it means fuck all Mm. because you need someone to sit with you and look you in the eyes and tell you it Mm. you don't need to read it online you need someone to sit with you as an individual and hear you Mm -hmm. so i don't have at the moment i would like to work with more people from more diverse backgrounds to help them do the things that they want to do at the moment i don't know how to do that and something that I want to do is is, is work out how. Mm-hmm. Because I think that... I don't think that what I'm doing is just, you know, the methods that only white women can use. Mm-hmm. However, I think there's something about... There are different methods for different people 
at all different times. Um, are you familiar with the uh, email newsletter, Doing Good Leads? No, but I will write it down. Yeah, yeah get on them. Um, because they're, they're quite good for linking you to other things and you might want to be advertising yourself on there. Yeah, and like I'd like, something that I'd like to do, it's not, I think one of the challenges of being self-employed is you kind of take this hit where if you haven't got a lot of work on, mm. you can't offer a lot of stuff for free. Mm. And you get into this weird, like, glitchy situation where, like, everyone has to make sure they're not, you know, fix the holes in the boat first. Mm. So something that I found this year is I haven't been able to do that as much because I haven't necessarily had the financial resources that I wanted. However, as I was saying to you earlier before we started recording, I'm really interested in setting up some sort of pot of money to help so that either, you know, I can go out and deliver stuff for free or people can access some support or they can... I'm really interested in doing, like, a free ticket to every workshop that I do. But it's it's kind of like working out how to do that in a way that's compassionate and not about charity mm-hmm. and that is accessing the right people and all those sorts of, like, complicated type things, mm-hmm. which <clears throat> I think are... It's a whole other, like, job. Yeah. And that's something, yeah, definitely that I I want to begin to do and I want to learn how to do it because I don't just want to work with the same people all the time. And I don't. I see the people I work with and I'm like, they are diverse, in particularly they're neurodiverse. Mm-hmm. Um, but probably people would look at my client list and be like, oh, right, okay, you're one of them, are you? And I don't want to be one of them. You know, and it, it, it it's a challenge. It's a challenge with some of those things. And I think it's, uh, I would like to to change that. And that's maybe an, a next step for me. Do you ever feel that, uh, do you ever get that thing, you know, a lot of people who are self-employed, are sort of, they, they get themselves into that trap of they can't, they feel like they can't refuse work because it's like, I've always, I don't know, you know, because it's not, it's not guaranteed, you know, you're not on a salary, it's like you don't work, you don't get paid, so every bit of work that comes along, it's like, I've got to get it, I've got to nail it down. It doesn't seem like you really suffer from that. No. Uh, but that's about, you know, when I um, was working full-time, when I got, like, a pay rise in my very, very last job, um, I started saving, and then when I became self-employed, a lot of people who are self-employed don't save because... Um, as a society, we're not very good at saving mm. because we don't, because we have short-termism, mm. because of capitalism. <laughs> it's like, that's always... But I have always been brought up to be very, like, to think long-term. So both of my parents are very, very kind of strategic, mm. like, almost logical people. As a child, not great. As an adult, really helpful. So I've always kind of seen, seen things in a much more long-term view. So I started saving. I went... Um, self-employed when I was 28 I joined a pension scheme um at 28 and I like a private one and I save into that I also save my own like little pension money but I started saving and I saved more than I needed to for tax so a lot of people don't save enough for tax because um they just assume that it will be fine so because of that I built up quite a big pot of money of savings that had various emotional attachments which I then really struggled with because it was like I'm not allowed that money blah yeah. blah blah all that shit but because of that I never felt like oh I have to do this work 
it's like there is some savings there. I never ended up really having to to look at take those savings. Yeah, but yeah. over the last year, I have I have used that because I chose to you know go travelling and chose to maybe do work which is less regular or less volume. So like when I used to do copywriting jobs, I'd regularly get copywriting jobs that were like four grand, you know, for huge swathes of content. You don't really get that with the people I'm working with. So like coaching. I try and do flat fee at the moment because so many people charge a huge amount of money for it. And I want it to be accessible, but I also want to make sure that I'm... Yeah, you don't want to underprice yourself because then you seem cheap and what you're offering seems of less value. Yeah, and it's not. It's really effective. But it's also about, like, the with things like coaching and mentoring, they're energetically really demanding. Just like care work, it's care work is so energetically demanding and we do not pay people enough to do that work teaching all of those sorts of things where it's like a service and coaching and mentoring has a similar like it's in no way as energetically demanding as those things but it has a similar energy like cost so i need to make sure that i'm going right well i'll charge this much because then i know actually i can't do any other work for that day but I try and I try and charge that, but I've never really had that thing of like saying no is a problem. And I also have apparently I was known for a while as like the one who doesn't do mates rates. And I think it's because. But that's good. That that really means good. that you're like well, no, I'm not gonna. This is my price. This is, this is what I'm yeah. offering. Is what it's worth. And people like an old colleague of mine was doing some freelance work for an organisation we both used to work for. And I said, oh, they never hire me. And he said, oh, it's because I heard them. They, they think you're really, they're like, oh, sh- you're always busy and you're like expensive, but not in a like, you're too expensive, just in a way of like, oh, you're, you're so, it's like a luxury handbag. Yeah. And I thought, well, all right, yeah, fine. I'll take that. But it's like too many self-employed people start by undercharging. Mm. Like you can always lower your prices, mm. but also people don't, they, they offer the price. Mm. Like one of the best bits of advice I got, I think my first freelance job was, if you tell them the price and they don't blink, mm. you're not charging enough. Mm. So like they offer the price as this like, am I allowed to ask for 20 quid an hour? Mm. It's like, you can fucking ask for whatever you want. Mm. So I've never really had a, an issue with like, I probably didn't charge as much as I could have done and I've recently put my prices up for some things. But that's like, you know... As you progress through your career, you get paid more, hopefully. So as I progress through my freelance, I get paid more. But I've never really had a problem with saying no because it's not it's not worth it. And like it's not like I've got loads and loads of cash. I think I'm in a better financial situation than a lot of my peers because of the way that I've chosen to live my life mm. and the things that I don't have and the way that I my my mind operates in terms of strategic like save for the future things um but i just also think if you say yes to a job that doesn't feel right like you regret it like as you are saying yes Mm. and then you just resent it Mm. and then it takes you like three times as long to do the work so it's not cost effective and it's just there will be other jobs there are always other jobs there are, um, but you know, they're not necessarily going to be better ones. No, I guess it depends. Like I'm quite, I'm one of those terribly 
optimistic people. Well, I do, I, I do want to go back to your earlier point because I do think that's very interesting in terms of, so me not working at the moment, um, like it's been fantastic. Mm. Like I was saying to you earlier, you know, we're in the middle of winter and like last year when I was working, getting up in the darkness, coming home in the darkness and it's cold and it's just kind of a really horrible time of year, especially coming up to Christmas because everyone's starting to get more and more crazy. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, until you actually have Christmas where you have that brief moment of, oh, we'll all just sit down for five <laughs> minutes now. Yeah. And then, and then you have the new year and then it's back to misery with the Monday of the year. And it's just really nice. But the thing is, it makes a massive difference of having some resources. So I got some tax back from earlier in the year, which gave me enough cash to kind of not have to bother working. But as I'm running out of that cash, I'm now getting back to the position of, well, there is stuff that I kind of have to pay for. I mean, Mm. I kind of can get away with as well, not paying for it, but I want to pay for it to a degree. Um, And that's going to force me into a position where it's like, I just have to take a job and I just have to take a job, whatever comes along, the Mm. first thing that comes along, which I know I'll hate. And which would be beneath me, which will be like, you know, and I'll stay there and I'll be really miserable for however long and then I'll come out and then I'll, I'll, I'll have to go and do that again. Mm. Um, but you only feel that, you're only in that position when you're, when you're out of cash. Mm. Uh, um, as well, uh, I remember reading this article a few years back talking about, you know, all this sort of bans and things in the 20th century that came out of working class culture is like but a lot of that was enabled by the fact that Mm -hmm. you had benefits you know you could survive without you know working some zero hours contracts yeah or like in the 90s there was a huge fashion explosion in fashion brands Mm. like amazing kind of fashion brands set up in london and that was because of government um creative industries like injection of money and Mm. funds and grants if you haven't got the space to think or to breathe you, you, you haven't got the space to create. No. I think it's, it, it's quite challenging in that a lot of... How do I say this? A lot of people um, are... I'm a really optimistic person. Like, I just am. I think I've had to be for a lot of reasons in my life because otherwise I would probably just fucking kill myself by now. Honestly. So... For me, like students have asked me, oh, do I have to work a shitty job after uni just to do this, that and the other? And I I'm always say, I wish I could tell you no. But You don't have to, but you don't you're have very to. likely to. You're very likely to. But one of the things that happens is that what we get, this short term is and we get it. We go, oh, right, I've not got enough money right now, so I need to take a job that I'm going to, I'm doing lots of inverted commas. I need, in inverted commas, to take a job that I know I'm going to hate it's going to force me, is what your words were, I mean, it's forced me to take this job, etc, etc. And what happens is you get this myopic thing of like, well, I'm going to do this job. If you're in any way inclined to like, um, as I definitely am, mental health kind of malaise and depression, you go, well, this is it, this is it for the rest of my life. I'm never going to get a better job. Da, 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 da. And you kind of get into this spiral of like, this is it. And I have to do these shitty jobs. Mm-hmm. I genuinely think that if all of us had a bit of kind of understanding of, right, what do I really care about and what is my long-term situation? And I'm talking like 20 years at least, if not 50. 
we would go, do you know what? I am going to take this job for six months and I'm, I'm not going to enjoy it. But what I'm going to do is at the end of every day, I'm going to make sure that I do this, this and this. I'm going to make sure that I do this in my job. I'm going to top up my money. I'm going to whatever it is that you need to do to get to the point where you feel like I don't think this is a complete fucking waste of my time. Because mm. there were a lot of I did some shit shop jobs. But they looking back, I actually really enjoyed them at the time often, not always, but often because I was learning loads of stuff. I love learning or I was getting to interact with customers and some of them I hated and some of them I was like, I'm really finding this useful to learn how to talk to people. Mm. Um, and then when I was working full time, again, some terrible clients, some terrible colleagues, but I was like, I am learning so much right now and I'm getting the money the money's coming in and it's not like a huge amount it's not a bad amount but it's just the money is coming in and I'm saving it and I know that this is not going to do I'm not going to be doing this forever but I'm doing it now but because I think we don't have that like 20 year 50 year not even like plan in like this really structured way but even a kind of vision of who we like our life we think that whatever is happening right now is it yeah, and it's actually like, yeah, you're probably, a, maybe you're at a point now where you're like, okay, so I need to take on a job. I think. But uh, you, you, maybe one of the reasons you're so happy now is because you're doing stuff that you really fucking care about. And if there's an opportunity to say, right, if I really care I about this. I think it's more I'm not doing stuff that I really don't care about than doing stuff that I really do care about. So opera- I think that's a, 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 a more important thing to me. It's more important to me. To not be wasting my time on some mindless rubbish, which is generally what society wants us to do. Yeah. Um, and that's been my experience through most of it. It's like, come and do this mindless thing that makes someone who's already rich, richer, mm-hmm. and that adds nothing to your life. So if that's <laughs> coming from, I th- I, so many people feel like that. I felt like that. That's one of the reasons I left full time work. Yeah, and I'm much happier not doing it. Yeah, so you're so that's your minus one is like working for someone else, generating all the cash for them, doing mindless shit. So you're right now you're at zero, which is I'm not doing that. Mm. But we spend so much of our time trying to not be at minus one and just be at zero that we're just all right. Mm. Whereas if the next step is to go, so what would make it plus one? And to do one thing to get there. So the next time that you're going to go in and be like, right, I want to, I do want to get a job or I want to get a temporary job. I want to do something for six months. What is it that I can do? Or what is it that I can learn about? Or what is the thing that's important to me? And then I choose it based on that. Because a lot of people are much more educated and skilled and motivated than they currently think they are because they've been led to believe that they're not good enough by systemic issues by individuals by families by teachers but actually you know you're an incredibly intelligent articulate person who really cares about work who's like clearly is really well versed in a huge number of things can talk to people the idea that you are going to be forced into a shitty job i just think okay no but that's me again this is the why i'm doing the things that i'm doing because i really look at i look at people and i just think there is so much there to be explored and expressed. And yes, sometimes I've taken on freelance jobs that I've said yes to that I haven't found that interesting. But I've said yes because I'm like, that's that money in the bank or that's that freedom or that's that time it's buying me or whatever. Mm. Doesn't mean just because I've said yes to everything doesn't mean I've said yes, like orgasm, yes. Mm. It's just, yes, okay, I need that or I need this or whatever. 
But I don't think we do that. We don't have this like vision of what we'd think our life could be like. And I'm not, you know, I think when people talk about that, it's like not being, a, you don't, it's not about being a millionaire or like having a fancy house. It's about, I will get to the point where I'm like 40 or 50 or 60 and just be like, do you know what? Yeah, I did spend loads of time writing that book or I did spend loads of time with my friend or cultivating a vegetable garden or like tra- whatever the fuck it is. When we do that, everything we do now feels like less of a bind. And I know like, yeah, it is a lot of words. And I think that sometimes it's hard because I think, is anyone fucking listening to me? But when pe- when I work with people to do this and really go into the nitty gritty and they say, well, I can't do that. My a, a client I worked with recently, her goal was to go to New York on an independent trip just for like four days, which seems like, oh, surely you could just book a plane. Right, you're like frowning, like what? But that is about her identity as not attached to her family. She wanted to make the money for that trip funded from her own business, not her part-time job. Mm -hmm. She wanted to go there as an individual, experience it in her way, do all that stuff. It was not about... She wanted something of her own. And that is everything that we're doing in our life is something of our own, something that is truly who we are. Mm. And... The biggest thing for her was going through that process of being like, this is not about a holiday. This is about who you are and who you want to express and feeling okay with that. It's not just about a job. You, you said there about it being below you because that's recognising your own self-worth. The fact you can do that, a huge number of people can't do that. So recognising your own self-worth and that you have skills and something to offer and being okay with wanting better, that's quite hard for a lot of people. Well, I think it's especially hard for the English because it's so well. But you're so you know you're so deserving. You don't deserve it, and you're not going to get yeah. it. So shut up. And that's like <laughs> remember and to that, tip your cap. And that voice and that head movement you just did, which is a kind of like slightly looking down. You know, that's the voice of so many parents, so many teachers. It's the voice of the country, mm. and it's that's just what this country tells people. And it's just not true. Because what most people want is not this kind of extraordinary, you know, most people don't want power and money and no, like they land just want to be treated like a person. They want to be respected and they don't want to be looked down upon when they just meet someone of like, you know, you don't want to be looked up and down and then someone's dismissing you out of hand because you got the wrong clothes on or yeah. and what happens combed the wrong way. What whatever. happens is we look in the mirror and we don't respect ourselves, we dismiss ourselves. We say, you know, there's, it's like people who've got these amazing hobbies that they don't tell anyone about. Or like these fantastic accomplishments that they have achieved, or these, and I've done it before. I just won't, I, did, I was a keynote speaker for a conference. I didn't fucking tell anyone. It's not like I'm perfect, I'm just like, got all my shit sorted. It's that, it's a continual journey of recognizing that we have worth and value and that we are allowed to want our lives to reflect that. And we're allowed to want our jobs and the work that we do to reflect that, if that is your choice. You don't have to. No, no, no. Well, again, I think it's an interesting point. But isn't that about... uh, 
I need to start reading more because my language acquisition skills are pretty terrible at the moment. Um, it, it isn't that about setting the person though as well. It's not just about training them in, you know, a bunch of mantras or um, kind of affirmations of like, no, I am really worth it and I can go out and win. And but like, they need to be embedded within a context of that of people going, no, you are worth it. And I think that's yeah, that's why people work. But that's the hard thing to build. That's surely, why people you can work build it with within mentors. an individual. But then the individual then has to build that network out. Like mm-hmm. our That's society why... very definitely does not contribute. It does not create an environment for that. Even if you're in a, a loving, supportive family, like you're going to go into friendship groups. So like I can't, I definitely can't imagine or see being in in some kind of friendship group where everyone's like supporting you, for want of a better word. Especially you know being in Northern England where it's more like if you want to do something your mates are more likely to knock you like banter but they're more likely to knock you than support you so well, someone I used to be in a friendship group when I was at uni and someone once said to me you should be really careful about you know telling people about all the stuff you're doing because it makes them feel really bad so what that, do I do well that's Just that not per- your fault so the key is there though that you are the change like yeah, I agree. We don't necessarily have those contexts at the moment. This is why people work with coaches and mentors or, or consultants of any yeah, kind. It's because what small. you're doing is creating that very, very small community of two mm. where you both support each other in different ways. Really, the coach is doing more of the supporting because that's the relationship. But you're creating that support network so that people, again, have the resources to go away. So when they're not in that network, they still feel supported and resourced. Mm. And it has a huge impact. It's like a system, right? So you can't change one bit in the system without the rest of the system changing. And I've definitely found when I have started to be that person of, I, I'm okay, I, can, I am resourced, like I can provide, like I'm coming from a good place. The people around me, the friends I have, the relationship I have totally changes. Because you believe it, they believe it. It's not necessarily believe, it's that I act on it well, as well. Yeah, because you are it. I'm doing it. it. I'm yeah. modelling the yeah, behaviour. Yeah, yeah. So if you have a friendship group where people aren't supporting each other, someone has to be the first one to do it. Mm. And it, I don't think it should be the person who is... If you had a pyramid and there's like kind of the one at the bottom who's feeling the shittiest, it shouldn't be them. It's too much pressure on that person to come up to that. If they're at the minus one, it's too much pressure at them to be like plus one. But if someone's at zero and they can move to that plus one or they can become slightly more resourced or feel more confident, there's got to be someone in that group to be that first person like sometimes in a business context I talk about like being the canary in the cage you are the one who goes in and says hey guess what this it's safe to be vulnerable the air is safe to breathe so this idea of like well well it's like the thing where if you need help don't say can someone help point and say you because we all expect everyone else to be doing it and it's about owning and for me it's about saying look actually I'm in a place where I can embody how I would like this support this system to be I can embody how I want these com- this community to interact with each other and it is tiring like nonviolent communication it's tiring to be that person who says when this happens I feel this because of this need that I have it is tiring or like when I'm teaching it's tiring to be the one in the room who's saying let's connect with each other yeah, supportive it's tiring way. to force yourself out of bed to go and sit 
on a packed bus in the cold, wait there for ages, where people sneeze on you and open windows because they're too hot and blow freezing air in you and then go to some office where it's like it doesn't really make a difference if you're there or not. Mm. Like that's hard. Getting up and living within capitalism is hard. Mm -hmm. So uh, why if if we're prepared to put the energy and investment into something that makes the majority of us miserable and poor, why can't we put the energy and investment into something that actually improves our lives and makes things better for us? Why can't we have a return to community that isn't just let's nosy about what next door is doing and judge them like let's go, I completely go and help agree. them out i think and i completely agree I, I think one of the reasons that we are willing to put the energy into bullshit like the the thing of the getting on the bus and the yeah. office and the blah is because it is a model that is very clearly delineated that we understand that our that parents live through time. that we see yeah. whereas the model of like one of my clients i'm working with at the moment we went through the process of do you actually who have you had in your life who set a goal for themselves, been successful and been proud? And the number was zero. So we have to model all these behaviours. They're not from scratch. People exist who are doing this, but they are so rare in our lives that we have to go through this like demanding process of going, not only am I trying to do it for myself, I'm being the like fucking blueprint for other people. So it's essentially, although it's depressing and miserable it is easier to fit into a template than it is to make this new blueprint but i completely agree if you're willing to put that energy in and to be drowned in that misery miserable experience if you take that energy and switch it into okay actually how could i you know next time my friend says to me oh i'm starting a new project or i got promotion instead of feeling really fucking envious and cutting her down for it how could i say i'm so proud of you I really support you. I love what you've done. I'd love to hear about it. And use that energy of being supported to know that your friend will then return that back to you. Because they will. But that, like, someone's got to be the first one. And, like, I'm happy to be that in what I do. Mm. I think a big thing is, like, if you are the person in your relationship, your friendship, your family, someone has to be the first one. And... That includes setting good boundaries for yourself, includes requesting what you need. It's not just give, give, give. It's about not, like being that whole, complete, abundant individual. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that and found something of value in it. I'm still very early in this process of learning as I go, including with the presenting and publishing. If you're listening to this and are interested in hearing more, you should be able to look forward to all of these episodes becoming more polished. That's it for now. Episode 2 is already available and more episodes will be dropping shortly. Okay, everyone take care and be safe.